You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. This is episode number two, The Ocean Blue. Thank you for joining us. My name is Matt. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the dawn of what's known as the Age of Discovery. You see, when you're telling any story, really, but especially a historical story, I think it's important to give the necessary background information to really paint a picture of the world in which we find ourselves. And when you're talking about piracy in the Caribbean, around the beginning of the 1700s, I think the logical place to do that is the Age of Discovery. That is, the time when explorers from Europe explored really all over the world to places most of them had never even heard of, but most importantly to our story was when they traveled west and discovered, explored, and subsequently colonized the New World, what's known as the Americas. Now, this is kind of a foolish undertaking because to talk about the age of discovery is a huge topic. I mean, single figures in this story could take up entire podcast series, and I'm going to be trying to talk about all of them in a single short episode. So understand that I'm going to be talking in very broad strokes. I'm not going to get too in-depth into anything, but I, I want everybody that's listening to have at least a basic understanding of who these characters are and what they did and why this is important. Now, many of you have already heard some of these stories. You know, we learned about most of this stuff in elementary school, but this is kind of a refresher course, as well as an opportunity for me to talk about some things that I think are under-discussed and that are pretty important. When you're looking at the dawn of the Age of Exploration, you have to look at it through Iberian eyes. Now, of course, the Iberian Peninsula today is comprised primarily of Portugal and Spain, but things were a little bit different in the 1400s, which we'll get into in just a minute. The first thing you have to realize, though, about these Iberian eyes is that they were staunchly Catholic eyes. Now, many of you might be saying, well, of course they were Catholic eyes. This was Europe decades before the Reformation. Why wouldn't they be Catholic? Well, especially in the Iberian Peninsula, there were a couple of other pretty prominent religions. Of course, there were Jews all throughout Europe, but more importantly to our story, the Iberian Peninsula had, until very recently, been under the control of an Islamic kingdom uh, known as the Caliphate of Cordoba. Now, the Caliphate of Cordoba, well, that started in the year 711. It was when an army of Arabs and Berbers, known collectively as the Moors, invaded the Iberian Peninsula from North Africa. Now, they did very well. I could go into all sorts of dates and battles and treaties and names, but that's not what this is about. You just need to know that more than half of the Iberian Peninsula was controlled by the Caliphate of Cordoba. The Caliphate of Cordoba was renowned throughout the Christian and Muslim world as a 
a center of learning and science. Now, of course, the Islamic world as a whole was leaps and bounds ahead of the Christian world at the time in terms of learning and science, so that kind of suggests that the Caliphate of Cordoba, to be known for it, must have been well ahead and very advanced. Now, why does this matter? Well, not only did the Islamic world excel in science, they also excelled in trade. They had a monopoly on trade between the East, which was essentially India and China, and the West, which was essentially Christian Europe. Now, this control was due to two things. First of all, the Silk Road, the overland route to get to the East, was controlled and ran through Islamic lands. But almost more importantly, they had a control over seafaring trade. They had, of course, many rivers that were very important to trade, such as the Tigris and Euphrates and the Nile. But the most important conduit to trade was the Mediterranean, which was known at the time as the Muslim Lake. Now, if you're going to control trade on the Mediterranean, you need one thing. You need ships, lots and lots of ships. And Muslim ships, such as the Caravel, were some of the best ships in the world at the time. They rivaled the Viking ships and were better than almost anything else in Europe. In fact, many Vikings were known to have traveled to the Muslim world to learn from their shipbuilders how to build better and better ships. So... You can see why when there is an Islamic caliphate in about uh, three-quarters of the Iberian Peninsula that's still populated by many Christians, many converts, and many people that would you know, have children that would live there, they knew more about building ships than almost anybody else in the West. And this was extremely important to, well, the story we're about to tell. Of course, the caliphate of Cordoba wouldn't last. As we all know, Eventually, the Christian nobles from Iberia, who had been hiding out in other parts of Europe and presumably growing pretty bitter, decided it was time to take back the familial lands that they considered theirs. This was a huge undertaking that took many years, lots of battles, lots of treaties, alliances, all sorts of exciting stories, none of which I'm going to talk about. This event as a whole was known as the Reconquista, in English, of course, the Reconquest. It was extraordinarily successful, and eventually there was only one small toehold left in all of the Iberian Peninsula that belonged to the Muslim Kingdom. That was, of course, Grenada. Grenada at the very southwestern tip, one of the Pillars of Hercules, which we'll get into in just a moment. Grenada lasted under Muslim control, until the year 1492. But before we get to that, before we talk about the other events of 1492 and that one guy you may have heard of, we need to talk about one other man who's almost as important to the story of the colonization of the New World as Christopher Columbus was going to be. That was a man named Prince Henry of Portugal, known to history as Henry the Navigator. Now, I'm not going to start talking about Henry the Navigator by saying, Prince Henry the Navigator was born on the 4th of March, 1394, because this isn't a biography about Prince Henry the Navigator, and really that's not important. What you have to know about him is that he's generally seen as the guy that kick-started the Age of Exploration, and the reason people think of him that way is because he was kind of the first European to really explore the Atlantic Ocean. Now, there is a date that you do need to know about, 
The date was July 25th, 1415, and what he did, well, he led a fleet of about 200 ships south in the Atlantic Ocean from the port at Lisbon. Now, that's a pretty large fleet for the time. On board were about 45,000 soldiers, which is no small army right there. And I have to think that most of his neighbors had to be wondering where Henry was going with that army. We know that King Ferdinand I of Castile initially thought that he was heading towards Grenada, the place we just talked about, that last toehold of the Islamic Caliphate in the Iberian Peninsula. He thought he was heading that way because, well, whoever took Grenada was going to be given a huge amount of honor and respect. See, for a Catholic monarch to get rid of the Islamic threat would have been huge. And, and beyond that, Grenada had a palace, the Alhambra Palace, which was extraordinarily wealthy and extraordinarily well defended. So not only would his reputation as a Catholic have gone up, his reputation as a military commander would have risen, and his wealth would have risen significantly. It was really the shining jewel to take. Now, Ferdinand was probably somewhat concerned about this because he had, well, he had laid claim to taking Grenada. He had the right to it, and if Henry was in fact heading to do that, that would have been essentially an act of war against Castile. But really, he didn't need to worry, because Henry knew that as well, and he wasn't heading to Grenada. He was heading to a place that was about eight miles south of Grenada, and that place is called Ceuta. Ceuta is the southern end of what's known as the Pillars of Hercules, Grenada being the northern end. Those are two peaks that begin the Strait of Gibraltar. The, uh, the Strait of Gibraltar is the waterway that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, as you might imagine, being named the Pillars of Hercules, it was kind of important to the ancient Greeks, and I'll go into that just a little bit. They're named the Pillars of Hercules because they mark the furthest westward extent of the travels of the hero known as Hercules. It was where he performed the tenth of his twelve labors. Now, Hercules was possibly the strongest and bravest man that the Greeks had in their myths, so if that was as far as Hercules was willing to go, then that had to serve as a warning to the rest of the Greeks not to go any further than that. Beyond that, well... Okay, we've all heard of Poseidon. Poseidon's normally known as the god of the sea, but really, he's the god of the Mediterranean. See, he was one of the Olympian gods that the Greeks felt they could somewhat understand, but beyond the Strait of Gibraltar, when you moved past that, well, those waters were in the hands of another god, an older god, really kind of a primordial deity. He was one of the titans, and his name was Oceanus. Oceanus was something of a mystery to the Greeks. He had... He had stepped back from the war between the Titans and the Olympians. The Greeks didn't really understand him or his motivations. And, well, Oceanus was the god of an ocean river that encircled the world as they knew it. The sun rose from Oceanus and went back into Oceanus as it set. He was, he was almost terrifying to them. There was something about him that was otherworldly in the way that the gods of their pantheon normally weren't. So they knew that it was dangerous to pass the Pillars of Hercules. Any ship foolish enough to do so certainly faced death. Now, 
The Romans, of course, adopted many of the beliefs of the ancient Greeks, and that was one of them. And really, even up until the time we're talking about, the early 1400s, that was still a belief that was somewhat held. Now, of course, Portuguese and Spanish ships would travel in the Atlantic a little bit, but it was they were dangerous waters. There were massive storms that would crop up. You could travel in them, but you wouldn't want to travel out too far. I mean, think about it. When you look at an old-timey map, you'll still see... Uh, a, a serpent, a sea monster out in the Atlantic Ocean. That, that means that monsters be there, and it's death to tread there. However, Henry the Navigator didn't really listen to that. He was one of the first, outside of probably some Vikings, but one of the first Europeans that said, I'm going to go ahead and go out there. I want to know what lies beyond. Now, that all came after he took Ceuta. He took Ceuta because, well, there were three big reasons. First of all, Portugal didn't have a whole lot of very good land for farming. It was pretty rocky terrain. Ceuta had very good land for farming grain. Grain was, of course, extraordinarily important. That's what you fed to your people. And Portugal was largely dependent on foreign imports, which didn't get them a whole lot of money. Of course, there were other reasons, one of them being money. Ceuta was very wealthy. It was a trading center that really connected the Islamic world to the Western world. See... Muslim traders would come across the coast of North Africa from the Middle East to trade their goods to Europe. There was a, a large and very established trading network there, so anybody who controlled that was going to become extraordinarily wealthy. So there was grain, and there was gold, and then there was another reason. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. There was a belief in the ancient world of a man named Prester John. Prester John is a strange myth that changed depending on who's telling and hearing that myth and really changes according to the era. For example, many of the crusaders believed that there was a man named Prester John on the other side of the Islamic world. Now, some people even believe that the person they believed to be Prester John would have been Genghis Khan. Uh, in the time of Henry the Navigator, there was a belief that in Ethiopia, a Christian king named Prester John was doing constant battle with the Muslim armies. He was also extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. So if they got a toehold on Africa, maybe they could explore inland and find this Prester John and finally do away with the Muslim scourge. So they had grain, they had gold, and they had God. The three G's, right? They had all of these reasons to take Ceuta. 
And they did. It really went pretty well. It was a fairly easy battle. However, what they didn't realize or didn't think through was that once they took this Muslim trading post that was supposed to make them extremely wealthy, well, the Muslim traders from the Middle East weren't going to trade with a bunch of Christians. That wasn't what they were there to do, especially after they had invaded and sacked one of their towns. So they took this trading post, but really didn't have anything to do with it. So there he was, Henry the Navigator, in his newly taken town with, really, nothing to do. He had a lot of ships, too. So he had to figure, what am I going to do with all these ships and all these soldiers and an interest in sea travel? And, well, he did a couple of things. First of all, he explored Africa. He had a lifelong fascination with the continent. But more important to our story, he decided it was time to travel west. West from the coast of Africa, from Europe, into the Atlantic Ocean to see what he would find. I don't want to mislead you, though. Despite his name, Henry the Navigator, he didn't actually go on many of these seafaring expeditions after that. Mostly, he planned and financed the expeditions. These expeditions moved further and further south. All along the African coast, he was setting up settlements and trading posts. These settlements would, before long, become infamous for, well, the slave trade. But in Henry's time, they were used primarily to trade with the Africans and as starting points for expeditions into the Atlantic to see what he could find. You see, he knew a little bit about what was out there. About a hundred years before this, a Genoese sailor had, he had found a group of islands about a hundred miles off the coast of Africa. Now, I say he found them because he didn't exactly discover them. These islands were known of before that, even as far back as the ancient world. In the first century CE, Pliny the Elder even wrote about them, calling them Canaria. Now, those are, of course, the Canary Islands. So they were known about, but it wasn't until the early 1300s that European explorers found them. And there was a flurry of exploration from the Genoese, from the Portuguese, and the Castilians, but really they weren't particularly profitable islands. Uh, there wasn't much that they could grow there, and there were a large number of very hostile natives that did not want Europeans there, so while you could set up colonies, there wasn't much point to setting up anything too large. But by Henry's time, sea travel, especially because of technological advancements in, in the ships themselves had really made them a little bit more profitable. So Henry was looking for something like that. He was looking for something like that because the Castilians were in control of the Canary Islands by that point. And all along the African coast, he was sending out ships to try and find islands that Portuguese sailors could, could colonize. Unfortunately, he wasn't finding anything. Many of his expeditions didn't come back at all. The Atlantic Ocean is a dangerous place, so even on the rare occasions that one of his ships would come back, they didn't have anything to report. So eventually he decided that he would just take one of the Canary Islands. Well, he would try to, and he would fail. And he would try again, and he would fail again. Several times he would try to take the Canaries from the Castilians and fail which was unfortunate because for Henry the Navigator, a man who had done so much to promote sea travel and to promote exploration, really, despite the fact that he set up so many settlements in Africa, he was unable to set up any settlement in the Atlantic Ocean. 
No, that's not to say that the Portuguese wouldn't have any settlements in the Atlantic. Somewhat north of the Canary Islands, right about the time that Henry the Navigator was setting out, another Portuguese sailor found an island called Madeira. Now, Madeira was bigger than any of the Canaries and had much better land for growing sugarcane. So their sugarcane was, was much richer and produced much better sugar than anything grown in the Canaries. So good, in fact, that the sugar itself was about worth its weight in gold. This, of course, produced a flurry of exploration from the Portuguese out into the Atlantic to try and find as many islands as they could, and they found several. They found the Azores, and they found the Cape Verde Islands, which, ironically, despite the fact that Verde means green, were not very verdant. They were pretty arid places. But they found several islands that would really begin the Portuguese Empire. Now, Portugal is generally given credit for having started the first real global empire. And we just mentioned a couple of reasons for that. They weren't particularly resource-rich. They weren't a very large nation. And they realized that the only way they were going to keep up with their neighbors was by expanding. You know, sometimes when you're looking back on the great events in history, you know, the big stuff, things like the fall of the Roman Empire or the beginning of the Renaissance, you can look back and really hindsight is 2020. You can see the perfect storm emerge of events and forces that build and pressurize to create these huge world-shaking events. In the case of the Age of Discovery, that period only lasted about 50 years. And it started in the year 1453 with the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks. Constantinople was, of course, a very important city for a very, very long time. It was the city that really kind of bridged the gap between Europe and the East. See, it was the place where the Silk Road trading route kind of started. And the Silk Road trading route was extremely important to the people in Europe. It was where they got most of the spices that had become just integral to life in Europe. Things like cinnamon and cloves. They also got other goods from there. Obviously, they got silk. They got uh, porcelain china. And they got things like opium. All of this was hugely important to the Europeans. And when Constantinople fell, well, they really lost the safe place that began the Silk Road. And so, in effect, lost the Silk Road trading route, generally speaking. Now, the obvious answer to that problem would seem to be a sea route. If you can't trade by land, then why not trade by sea? Unfortunately, that wasn't a route that anybody had ever taken before between Europe and the Indies. The mariners of the time didn't even know if it was possible. You see, they didn't know what were the best ways to go, what were the safe ways to go. They didn't know if they would get caught up in a storm around the Cape of Good Hope and shipwrecked or killed, which was extremely possible. Beyond the natural dangers, there were also the dangers of people. There was very little that the Europeans considered civilization between Europe and the Indies, and anywhere they were likely to stop in Africa, there was a potential for hostile natives. Beyond that, closer to home, there was a definite danger of piracy. Even if you managed to make that voyage, it wasn't really ideal even still. So they realized that they needed another, better way to get to Asia. Now, of course, there were, se there were several ideas about this. Uh, some people took other routes through what would become Russia. That would happen a little bit later. 
But the most obvious route to many of these European monarchs was to travel west and find another sea route to Asia. So there's that. People are looking for a new sea route. But beyond that, Portugal and Spain, well, they're going through a very tense period in time. You see, Spain as a country had really become something that you could begin to talk about. There were two countries on the Iberian Peninsula, one known as Castile and one known as Aragon. And they had just recently began to merge. See, there was a marriage between Ferdinand II and Isabella I that, though their countries stayed separate, they ruled together, so they began to really integrate into a single society. So Portugal was kind of the third wheel. They were sort of left out of the loop. The the Pope, Pope Alexander IV, even called Ferdinand and Isabella the Catholic monarchs, giving them his papal blessing to do his bidding in the Iberian Peninsula. So they realized that there was something of an arms race, really a ship race, to see who could find the best trading routes to get to Asia first. In any arms race, you need several things. You need, of course, resources, and you need to gather those resources as fast as possible because you are always in a deficit of time against whomever you're having this arm race against. But in addition to that, you need, you need daring people, people that are willing to take risks. These risks are usually what lead to the greatest rewards and wind up winning those arms races. And that brings us, of course, to some of the great sailors and explorers, men with names like Christopher Columbus. Now, I'd like to pause here just briefly to discuss a little side topic. It's going to be about names and pronunciation. See, Christopher Columbus's name was not actually Christopher Columbus. His name was actually, as best as we know, Cristoforo Colombo. And Prince Henry the Navigator's name wasn't actually Prince Henry the Navigator. His real name was Infante Enrique de Portugal. Now, it would be much more difficult for me to say that every time, because as anybody out there who actually speaks Portuguese could just tell, I don't speak Portuguese, and I don't know how to pronounce Portuguese very well. I intend to do my best about things that are, their given names are generally accepted to be, and be it Spanish or French or Portuguese or Dutch. But when there is a name that is too most people in English-speaking countries known as something else, such as Henry the Navigator or Christopher Columbus, I intend to use the anglicized version of their name. Now, for example, a long time from now in our chronological history, there's going to be a ship called the Caca del Fuego. The Caca del Fuego, well, I could call that the shit fire every time if I really wanted to, but you see, people in history know that ship as the Caca del Fuego. So I'm going to go ahead and use its given name there. So if there are any issues you guys have with any of my pronunciations or the names I use, please let me know, and I'll do my best to correct them. I don't want to be uh, offending anybody with my ignorance here. So you've got Portugal and Spain. Not exactly an open war, but tensions are definitely high. They're kind of at each other's throats. Beyond that, you've got both countries, as well as pretty much every other country in Europe, looking for a sea route to Asia that can replace the Silk Road. And then in addition to all of that, in the year 1492, Spain, finally, after many, many years, takes the city of Grenada. They finally oust the last vestige of Muslim rule in the Iberian Peninsula. 
So there's no more reconquest to take place, and everybody's kind of looking around, seeing what they can do to improve their position. And into that world, in walks Christopher Columbus. Unfortunately, though, we're running short on time. I'd really like to try to keep these episodes under about a half an hour, and Columbus and the Spanish conquest of the Americas is a very big topic, something that I'd like to be able to give some proper time, so I'm going to devote my entire episode next week to that. Hopefully, though, I've given a good picture of the world that spawned men like Christopher Columbus and Hernan Cortez. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I really appreciate it. Our theme music, as always, is The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you're enjoying this podcast, I think they might be right up your alley, so why don't you go over and check them out over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, check out our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash the Pirate History Podcast, or follow us on Twitter at Black Flagcast. If anybody has any questions or concerns, feel free to message me. I really look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again. Tonight